0: Analyze Asia is brought to you by SAVEL. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. SAVEL helps your in house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices, to real time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Yes, FTX was a very large institutional player. Genesis, whatever happens out there, was a very large institutional player. And so it'll take a lot of time for the fallout to fully play out. But just taking a step back and looking at the big picture, none of this has any impact on crypto's like multi-year arc towards enabling innovation. Ethereum as a trustless decentralized digital asset settlement layer is groundbreaking. That nothing will change that. Tokens as a form of capital creation is a paradigm shift for business formation. Nothing's going to change that. And talented builders are still continuing
1: to come into the system. And soon their work and their labor will bear fruit. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. And all roads in crypto lending leads to Genesis, if anyone has ever worked that out by now. With me today Cosmo Jiang, founder of Nova River and host of Liquid Podcast with Global Coin Research. And we're going to discuss the FTX collapse and what it means for the digital currency group, which own Genesis, Coindesk, and many other subsidiaries. Last but not least, full disclaimer, I'm a Web3 angel and retail crypto investor holding tokens. The discussion here is for informational purposes and does not constitute as investment advice please do your own research and make up your own mind. Cosmo, welcome to the show again. Hey, Bernard. Thanks for having me. Great to reconnect. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to?
0: Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting few months in the market. Since we last spoke, I've officially launched my investment firm, Nova River, and we're off to a relatively good start. Really grateful for all the limited partners that have joined at launch and trust me, with their hard-earned capital. Clearly macro-wise, there's been a lot of activity over the last few months from the ETH merge to the continued slowdown of global economies to the FTX collapse, which I'm sure we'll dive into in more detail.
1: Just out of curiosity, I think when you start your hedge fund, you're probably not trading on FTX, right? I was a user of FTX to some extent, yes. I think like the reality
0: is the FTX product was pretty good. Um, I, and especially as a, as a US Domicile fund, um, FTX offered very, very high quality product in terms of like usability and the liquidity available on the platform. We now know that maybe there are some questions around the liquidity on that platform, but I was a user. But, you know, as soon as the rumors hit, I was very quick about uh, withdrawing the capital. I think it was early on a Sunday morning. And so total, uh, my fund's, Prices have gone down obviously but my but no no material adverse effect for myself and my investors
1: that's good to hear because I left basically a hundred US dollars in June after the first collapse and basically I uptraded into 500 US dollars and I lost all of them into the <laughs> exchange itself. oh man well
0: so at least it's, you lost a hundred not theory you lost only a hundred but that can't be fun I feel terrible for all the funds that did end with deposits stuck on FTX it's just, such a shame. I'm just fortunate, I guess, or or good thing that I work 24-7. And so I was just quick to make the withdrawal that
1: was necessary and just risk manage just in case anything happened, which unfortunately it did. Same here. I also feel pretty sorry for some of my friends who has been hit by this FTX collapse, which definitely comes to the main subject of the day. There's two parts of the conversation I want to have on Genesis potential insolvency under the DCG group. And the FTX collapse. I'm going to do it backwards first. So I'm going to start with the FTX collapse first, which was the chronology of events that led to the collapse of FTX and the spectacular downfall of Sam bankman fried I think it's probably helpful to back up a little bit just in
0: case people listening don't have the full context and talk about how SPF first entered the industry. So starting from way back... Er, Somewhat way back when, SBF started a proprietary trading firm called Alameda Research in 2017. Uh, This hedge fund started focusing primarily on high-frequency trading and market-neutral strategies. Uh, But as anyone who knows who runs that type of strategy, is that's less scalable and started to become very crowded. So... Over time, as competition increased and as Alameda grew, it started to do more directional uh, directional trading, directional investing, uh, given those are more scalable and less crowded. And so as far as FTX goes, uh, as a trader who saw the problem of a lack of adequate trading infrastructure in crypto, SBF decided to start his own exchange called FTX in 2018. The initial startup cost, as well as the initial liquidity on the exchange, was all provided by Alameda Research, so the hedge fund that he still owned a 90% share in. So there was clearly a... Conflict of interest from the start, but clearly a very synergistic reason that to coexist at the beginning. Fast forward to June of this year uh, with the collapse of Luna, the Terra Stablecoin, the Hedge Fund 3AC, which we spoke about a few months ago. The fallout caused a lot of contagion amongst many crypto lenders including Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi. At the time, FTX and Alameda seemingly stood up very strong. SPF ended up being a white knight, rescuing even two of these businesses, including Voyager and BlockFi. Now, flash forward a few months later from June and now to November. So on Wednesday, November 2nd, a Coindesk article came out with a leaked partial second quarter balance sheet for Alameda. And it showed that Alameda used a lot of FTT, which is a FTX token, as collateral for its borrowing. This was very curious because... FTT is pretty illiquid, and Alameda's collateral represented a very large share of the float of FTT. That caused some to believe that the collateral is less good than it seemed and the balance sheet more shaky than it seems. Uh, So just a few days later, after that CoinDesk article was published, on that Sunday morning, November sixth, Binance CEO CZ uh, declared that he began selling his very large FTT stake in response to that disclosure. Uh, Binance, funnily enough, had received that FTX because they were an early investor in FTX and now decided after a few years uh, to start selling that. Alameda CEO Caroline Ellison immediately declared that they'd buy back as much FTX as he wanted at 22 bucks. Uh, but as anyone who knows, if there's one rule about the market is that it always tests points of weakness, and immediately the market smelled fear. So from there, the unraveling quickly happened in just a few days. Um, So that was Sunday, morning, my time. So morning, East Coast time, sell off on FTT began, users began withdrawing funds in mass By Tuesday morning, early hours, less than 48 letters, FTT was trading well below that $22 level that uh, the Alameda CEO had declared would be the red line, uh, and more than $8 billion of customer withdrawals at FTX had happened and been processed. And so FTX International paused withdrawals only that 48 hours later. Um, later that morning, Binance announced they would consider rescue deals But then the next day on Wednesday, they said they were backing up because the hole was way too big. And by Friday, November 11th, FTX declared bankruptcy.
1: And I think it is widely known that the relationship between Alameda Research and FTX is a tenuous one in the industry. How did Alameda Research ended up being bailed out by FTX? And that in turn also caused FTX to collapse from that
0: point of view. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Look, Alameda was, it's important to understand their relationship, right? Alameda was very integral to FTX's growth. In the early days, first of all, any startup needs startup capital to pay for costs. And then more importantly, for an exchange, um, as anyone that knows marketplace businesses, exchanges need liquidity or marketplaces need liquidity in order to attract traders. And that drives a positive flywheel of liquidity begets liquidity. In the early days, Alameda ended up being a very heavy portion of FTX's liquidity and trading volumes. And that was open secret it's now widely believed that Alameda actually received a number of special benefits in addition for providing that early capital and that included you know exclusive api keys that allowed faster access than any other users not having auto liquidations on its positions and so it's not a leap to then suggest as many traders have that Alameda would use those advantages to trade against and prey on FTX's clients as FTX scaled um, obviously its reliance on Alameda diminished but their special benefits likely remain and so in response to the credit crunch that happened in June, when everyone else blew up, it appears now, or we know now because FBS has said as much, that Alameda actually transferred that borrowing and risk to FTX. So, you know, in the past, Alameda was borrowing from a bunch of other people across the industry, but now that all those guys blew up, they—the only person to borrow from, or that they could get a large amount of borrow from, was FTX. This was clearly poor risk management on FTX's part, or just like blatant disregard for risk management. But like, you never let. A customer's margin account get too big to manage or be too or one customer be, be too large of concentration but that that clearly ended up being the case which is why Alameda blew up and Alameda's blow up le- led to FTX's blow up there's actually speculation that uh, Alameda had stopped being profitable for some time and that they were actually losing money by providing liquidity on FTX because they were often or known to be the li- liquidator of last resort on volatile assets so you know if something is going down in a straight line, and Alameda is the one liquidating out-of-line traders, they're actually losing money if like, it keeps going down after they liquidate the trader. So it's possible that FTX just continued to expend borrowing to help fill in the holes on Alameda, given their importance to FTX, and also given the clear cross-ownership that SPF had between Alameda and FTX. And then it's now clear that like, in order to cover that hole, it turns out that hole was covered by customer funds from FTX. So It'd be oh it'd be more acceptable or more reasonable if it if all those funds that were used to cover up Alameda's losses were from FTX's balance sheet itself, but it turns out that it came from customer funds. And so when the withdrawals began at FTX, the hole on the balance sheet was laid bare and, and customers
1: were na- unable to withdraw. So one can think of the cryptocurrency exchange as a casino and the casino always wins. I guess what are the other contributing factors that led to the collapse from your perspective?
0: Yeah, I think the casino word is uh, certainly cynical and harsh characterization, but the sentiment is is certainly true that crypto is highly volatile. And so using that casino analogy, though, the funny thing here is that like FTX is sort of like the casino or the house and that FTX was just and that like Alameda is just one of the very large whales playing in the house. But the problem is that FTX started giving this whale or started giving Alameda way too much credit. And... Alameda blowing up ended up blowing up the casino or FTX. And so, you know, casinos typically have better risk management than that. (laughs) That said, like the factors that led to the collapse of the exchange is really just like very classic human emotions of ego and greed. So like just tail as old as time. SBF has even admitted that he got too cocky in some of his recent interviews. Alameda started taking directional bets, getting away from the original roots as being market neutral market makers, which obviously works in a bull market. And so when things started to go down early this year, they thought they could quote unquote, buy the bottom and just do it again. But their greed, their ego led them to believe they could get away with what was effectively just like levering up, doubling down. And Unfortunately, in this case, in addition to that ego and greed is the also very market reaction, which is markets always smell weakness, like whenever there is a point of pain, the markets exist to test that. And so the spark for that fire was that CoinDesk article and then CZ from Binance's reaction. And so, you know, the volatility of crypto. Definitely contributes to the rapid decline because crypto assets can go down and uh, can go up and down very quickly. And because a lot of Alameda's collateral was crypto, the like the collapse was faster than any risk model could have predicted and could have been very hard to salvage. But like ultimately, it's really all about ego,
1: greed, and weakness. The same thing that happens in the 1880s when you have the Goro bank run as well. So, absolutely. I think I've listened to a couple of analysis from the Chopping Blog in the Unchained Podcast and also Bankless as well. One playbook that's been mentioned is that for SBF is that they launched new tokens such as FTT, Serum, and many others and use Alameda to front-run the trade during the bull market. And then when the market turned sour, the FTT price was just too high and became largely insolvent. So people can dump the token and trigger a bank, bank run in this case. What are your thoughts on Why they screwed up?
0: Yeah, I think it's probably helpful now to to dive into a little bit more what like what exactly FTT is. So FTT is effectively a token issued by FTX whose intrinsic value is primarily based on one the discounts FTX users got. So if you owned FTT, you got lower trading fees. And then also FTX would do buybacks weekly with a share of the FTX exchange f- exchange's fee revenue. So in theory, you could value FTT at like a you know, some multiple of FTX's exchange revenue. That said, you know, FTX and Alameda themselves own the vast majority of, of FTT shares. So even though it in theory has intrinsic value, the liquidity of the token is very low because not many people trade it. It's not very widely used. And it's like the holders are very, very concentrated in just those two people. So what happened or the screw up here was that it was believing that FTT price couldn't wouldn't go down that fast and that they would be okay. The problem is, as they say, when the market goes, goes down, like correlation on all assets goes to one. Like you've seen that this whole year has been a case study of that. All assets, fixed income, equities, real estate, crypto, everything's gone down this year because in a recession, everything, correlation goes to one. So there's tight correlation of even like traditional assets during a freak market move. And that's especially true when they're triggered by fear over that position itself. So in this case, FTT, you see this time and time again in finance, long-term capital management, same thing when you have a bunch of positions which are correlated Just certainly by virtue of being held by the same entity, they all sell off together because again, the market likes to attack weakness. You saw that with Melvin Capital last year with the GameStop saga. So in this very specific scenario, the crisis of confidence was in Alameda. Alameda owns a bunch of FTT and a bunch of other Solana related assets. And so when people started seeing weakness in Alameda, they targeted those assets. And so the crisis of confidence in Alameda combined with the run on the, I don't like calling FTX a bank, but like the run on customer deposits at FTX and the relative lack of liquidity caused the crash just being highly, highly correlated. And so over a two day period, like FTT dropped 90%, Sol dro- Solana dropped 50% in two days. Like that is a wild move. And it's not just like purely from spelling, It's it's because of fear and like lack of liquidity And so, you know, it's hard to like, these moves have never been seen before. They were like five to 10 X any prior two day history for those assets. So clearly any risk model that you could have done that FTX could have done, like no way to predict that kind of move, unless you sort of think of these black swan, like it's hard to, it's hard to predict, but it always happens. So like it does happen. And so the problem was using these tokens that were highly correlated as margin collateral and not realizing that this black swan could happen and that black swans actually happen more often than you think in finance.
1: And I agree with the Black Swan analogy. And actually, during this period of time when the market is really going down, I was spending a lot of time reading history of the robber barons. And I can think of the railroads as where the builders are. Like think of crypto builders and the gold and the shares market, like you know, the crypto markets. And then there are bank runs happening at that time. And then there is people like Jay Gold who actually caused the market crash on the gold price, which right. similarly, think about like a Bitcoin. And then I think about that and it's like, oh yeah, actually it just, it happens. It happened before, but just for a different context, a different time, I guess it happened. What is the Mm -hmm. fallout from FTX filing for bankruptcy? The first question on top of everyone's mind is will creditors, investors, and my friends, the users on FTX exchange, uh, whether it's global or US, get back their money? Because based on what I understand from a couple of interviews done by SBF on his media tour recently, he claims that FTX US is solvent. So I think this is a pretty interesting question to look at.
0: Yeah, I mean, my initial reaction when we saw the bankruptcy filing was to ask myself, okay, where are other signs of weakness? And like, how do I position myself correctly for that? Who gets hurt in the industry? And so like, there are a lot of different pockets. But Maybe just to start with, like you said, the creditors and investors, and the users, the media issue is that there's $8 billion of trapped consumer deposits. So I tend to believe that and corroborate what SBF said, that they probably, the US entities probably operated soundly and that recoveries there could be 100%, less any legal fees and, and sort of restructuring fees. The reason being that SBF and most of its employees, US citizens can be persecuted under US law, so they probably wanted to stay on the right side of that. Unfortunately, the international entity, which is the much larger entity by many magnitudes, is much harder to say. You know, the latest trades for FTX claims are sort of in the 5 to 10 cent range, so which means that for every $100 or every dollar of customer deposit that you have there, you might be getting 5 to 10 cents back. Now, that's like sort of accounts for legal costs and the time to recovery because these bankruptcy cases as we know or have seen in the past, large complex bankruptcy cases can take Decades to finish. Like Lehman, which went bankrupt in 08, is still unraveling in bankruptcy. You know, SPF has come out and said that he believes there's probably 25 cents on the dollar for FTX International. But again, after legal costs, after like the five to 10 year time value of money, you're probably looking at if you want to sell your claim today, five to 10 cents or maybe, you know, 20 cents down the road. So it's definitely very tough. And then like the bigger implications is like, What happens to everyone else? There were many funds and market majors and projects who held funds on FTX. So even if they do end up recovering their money, it's not going to be today and certainly not for a while. And some have estimated that actually like 20 to 40% of crypto hedge funds had exposure to FTX. That is just a shockingly large number of industry players lost money on FTX. Certainly... If you're a market maker, it was impossible for you not to have lost money on FTX because you had to be on there to do your business. Although seemingly so far, no major debt flows, although we'll see. And then a large, a large number of very well-known funds sustained very heavy losses, only to name those who have like publicly come out and already admitted it. But like people like CoinShares or Multicoin or Galaxy Digital, amongst others, have all come out and said, admitted that they had funds locked on FTX and that they're now in the recovery process. And then something that maybe gets less talked about or less focused on is a lot of U.S. funds, especially those that launched more than two years ago, they were sort of grandfathered in to accessing FTX offshore. They use that loophole to access perpetrating and so not only do those funds lose their money in, on FTX, but they actually have to overhaul their entire trading and execution strategy because now they can no longer trade perps offshore. That's what they've been doing for the last few years. So they probably need to overhaul their strategy. And just to be clear, like Nova River, my fund as a U.S. Held fund doesn't use those loopholes and that funny business. So no changes there, but many crypto native funds do. So it's pretty crazy And then there's a whole thing of like FTX actually stepped in and saved, supposedly quote unquote, saved companies earlier this year, like Voyager and BlockFi, FTX was going to bail them out. But now both of them back into bankruptcy proceedings, they go. So definitely a lot of pain, a lot of damage in the industry that still needs to be digested.
1: What about the crypto protocols? For example, Solana was badly affected by the FTX collapse.
0: That's a very good point. I think two things. One is that talking about the Solana ecosystem, sort of broadly speaking, definitely hit hard because FTX was such a champion and driver of growth there. You know, FTX had a lot of capital and they deployed a lot of capital into the space. I think their their help in actually writing code and providing technical help is probably overstated. It's less about the development and more about capital and trust. It's just going to be very hard to raise capital now if you're a new project in the Solana ecosystem. Previously, if you had a project with Solana, you were almost guaranteed to get funding from their venture arm with limited or no diligence and no oversight. That's just not going to be true going forward. Uh, So the cost of capital has increased very materially. I definitely wish all the teams in the Solana ecosystem the best of luck and applaud their continued effort to drive forward. Of course, it's just going to be a little bit harder. I think like the other issue is that a lot of protocols, not just on Solana, but on other chains as well, who received money from FTX, actually had money stored on FTX or FTX was their market maker if they had a liquid token. And so all those funds are now gone. And so the liquidity and, and uh, treasury health of a lot of protocols is now going to be deeply impacted. And many people are not reticent to admit that they've lost money because obviously it's embarrassing and it can be this kiss of death for your protocol, which is why we haven't heard of very many. But the fact is that a lot of projects lost a lot of their money on FTX.
1: Then how about the VCs? such as Sokoa and other investors, Tamasek who invested in FTX. For example, I think I was surprised by the lack of board seats and the minimum mm-hmm. due diligence done in the process. I mean, to be fair to Tomasek, because I'm Singaporean and it's my country's sovereign wealth fund. And to be fair to them, it's mentioned in the chopping block as well. They were the only ones who admitted they were in the wrong in this one. Then after that, followed by Sokoa making the apology to the LPs. But then you know what? In Singapore, it actually triggered now a parliamentary hearing right, and then an internal investigation review on the due diligence process. So it's not funny at all on that. Right. No, totally. I mean, look, I sympathize
0: with the view that a lot of firms got caught up in the hype of chasing deals last year because the environment was so frenzied. In my view, the private markets and crypto never made sense to me, which is why the fund that I've launched is all focused on liquid markets, where that at least is more a semblance of fair value, or at least know what's going on and where there's a lot less competition. But last year, it was just, there were so many VC funds raising capital, flush with capital and chasing deals. And so as a result, like it turns out the leverage and the negotiating power was with the companies, with the startups, right? That were raising capital, not with the VC funds. And so it's not that surprising that These startups like FTX could demand ridiculous terms and even tell people not to do diligence. I'll give the benefit of the doubt that VCs at least tried to do diligence. But if a project like FTX just tells you to like says no and go pound sand, like what are you going to do? Right. At that point, if you're a junior analyst or young partner at one of these VC firms, especially a large bureaucratic VC firm, Where there's not as much personal accountability, it's a career-limiting move to not chase one of those deals and miss it out. Like you have to. It almost feels like you have to. And by the way, your incentives aren't totally aligned if you're at one of these VC firms. And so that's also why, just like as an aside or as a small plug, like as a limited partner, it's just so important to make sure your incentives are aligned with the general partner. So in my fund, I have the vast majority of my personal net worth in the fund unlike the very laughable like 1% to 2% GP commits that is so common in VC funds. It's an issue of, one, lack of alignment of incentives in most VC funds, and then two, like it was really hard to not get caught up in the frenzy last year.
1: I think it's a skin-in-the-game question, right? And also, it feels to me that they all got fomo into the deal. And that was surprising to me. So I think now it's time for us to switch gears from FTX into, I think, the bigger conversation. I think when you were here in early July on the podcast, we discussed the collapse of 3AC, Terra Luna, and Celsius. Of course, we explained why the algorithmic stablecoin model didn't work and that led to Crypto Contagion. At that point, SBF was the JP Morgan of crypto, building up Voyager Block Five in fewer than two weeks in early November. The whole world changed with them filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and then element the research when insolvent. During the conversation, I think we have a discussion of what could be near extinction level events look like. And I think you and I didn't expect that actually happen. But it turns out that the digital currency group, which owns a couple of things, Genesis, Grayscale, which also has the GBTC, because it all appears that now, all the contagion actually started from this. To be quite honest, I've done the mapping a year ago and it really makes me wonder that essentially, is this going to blow up? So, but to just start off, can you briefly introduce the Digital Currency Group or DCG as we know it, which owns Grayscale with GPTC, Genesis as its landing arm, and ironically, Coindesk, which leaked the FTX story, their media outlet, and who Barry Silbert is. I know him as the founder of Second Market, actually. Sure. Yeah. Digital Currency Group or DCG
0: is a large institution with multiple operations in the crypto ecosystem including lending and borrowing by its Genesis subsidiary. Asset management, really structured products at its Grayscale subsidiary. A Bitcoin miner called Foundry. Like you said, a media outlet called Coindesk. And then they also do a lot of venture capital off their own balance sheet amongst other smaller services such as high net worth asset management. It was founded by Barry Silbert in 2015. Like you said, Barry Silbert previously founded Second Market, which for those who don't know, is a marketplace for pre-IPO company shares. So you wanted to trade, I don't know, Tesla stock or, or a SpaceX stock pre-IPO, uh, which they are still today, you could do that on second market. He was an early investor in Bitcoin. And as he saw things take off, he realized there was a real chance to, first of all, build a structured product type product. And so that's that was the genesis of the Grayscale. And then build out more of a prime brokerage business, which ended up being Genesis. As you mentioned, the current liquidity crisis is at the lending subsidiary Genesis Capital. And it is just so ironic, sad, but not funny that CoinDesk, their own media outlet was the one that leaked the story that was a spark to the flame that caused uh, this current liquidity crisis.
1: Can you describe how Genesis worked as a lending institution and then how the crypto hedge funds, for example, the defunct 3AC and Alameda Research and the exchanges, I think, for example, Gemini actually interacts with them.
0: Yep. Yeah. So Genesis's lending arm does exactly that, which is it underwrites and originates loans for crypto institutions. So it works in tandem with a trading arm, which is one of the largest options market makers and also a spot market maker. So if you're a fund who wants to trade with leverage or you want to make an options trade, you need to post collateral to someone in order for someone to extend you credit in order to make that trade. And Genesis is the one that facilitates that. So Genesis can make these loans either off their own balance sheet, or they can use so by collecting customer deposits and lending out customer money. So in the latter case, they actually borrow funds from customers such as Gemini, like you mentioned, and promising them a yield. This yield comes from the yield that they're paying to customer deposits comes from the interest income they earn from their lending arm, which is lending to funds like 3AC and Alameda. So just to put a little bit of numbers around it, how Gemini Earn works... You, the customer, deposits funds at Gemini. You opt into Gemini Earn. Gemini Earn then deposits, let's say, that $100 into Genesis. Genesis lends that $100 out to a fund, call it 3AC, at maybe 10%. So Genesis will collect $10 over the course of that year. And then Genesis pays Gemini Earn 8% for its deposits. Gemini Earn user is getting $8 by depositing money in. Genesis is collecting $2 of spread for itself. So that's how the Genesis lending business works.
1: The thing is that the part is that whenever people say some of these hedge funds that blew up, they say that they are trading on institutional funds, which is not exactly true, right? Because it actually goes to the Gemini situation. I think the earn is only available outside of the US Mm -hmm. as such. And hence, they are actually trading with customer money indirectly from that linkage. Am I right to say that?
0: Yeah, I'd say that retail users do have access to Gemini Earn outside the US. Institutions in the US have access to Gemini Earn, but Genesis generally only deals with institutions. But the reality is a lot of the neo banks and sort of consumer-facing platforms, they just collected a bunch of customer deposits and like user deposits, retail deposits and deposited with Genesis. So Genesis could say that they were only dealing with institutions, but in reality, like the money all came from users, just like you said.
1: Genesis was the largest creditor to 3AC. It's about $1.2 mentioned in the Chapter 15 filing. So the whole thing seems to originate from 3AC and Alameda Research being caught with the GPTC trade that went from a premium to a discount. As of today, it's about 40%. What is the mechanics behind this trade? So
0: I guess for context, Grayscale, the DCG company, offers closed-end funds that invest in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a few other crypto assets. GBTC is their Bitcoin trust, which only holds Bitcoin and nothing else. So anyone can put money into GPTC. If you do, that's used to buy Bitcoin one for one. So in theory, you should argue that like the price of GBTC should be equal to the net asset value of the underlying Bitcoin, because that's all it is. It's a box that holds Bitcoin. However, there are a couple key restrictions. One is that regulations actually prevent you from selling your newly minted GBTC for six months. So if you want to create GBTC, you're locked for six months. And even upon unlock, you can never withdraw. So if you want to monetize your GBTC, you can sell it on the open market. It trades on the open market, but you can't actually redeem. So this is a box that can only grow in size and you can like trade pieces of the box, but you can't actually take money out of the box. During the bull run, GPDC traded at a premium to its net asset value, as you mentioned, as high as 20-25% during all of 2019 and 2020. Why does that happen? Why should this box of Bitcoin trade more expensive than Bitcoin? It happens when people choose to buy GPDC in the open market rather than deposit it directly. And you might do so because you're afraid of that six-month lock or you just like don't know how to open a Coinbase account to buy Bitcoin. It sounds crazy, but it's possible. And clearly, a lot of people did that. This creates a really interesting arbitrage opportunity as you might immediately suspect and many hedge funds including 3AC noticed if i can create gptc for a dollar and immediately sell it for a dollar 20 that seems like a really good trade the catch is that what i said before which is that your GPTC is locked for six months so you're sort of betting on the fact that 20 percent premium will stay there for the entire six months and then you can sell this was working great for them throughout all of 2019 and 2020 and so as it started going on they started getting bigger in that trade and then they chose to supersize that trade by borrowing against their position to mint more gpdc so what does that mean 3ac maybe they wanted to mint 100 dollars of gpdc they create $100 of GBTC. They then take that GBTC and give it to Genesis, tell Genesis, hey, I want to borrow another $80 against my $100 of GBTC. Genesis is like, great, sounds good. Overcollateralized and grayscale benefits from increasing the size of the GBTC fund. Genesis benefits from having a larger lending book and generating interest income. 3AC benefits because they get to supersize their trade with relatively cheap debt relative to the profit they think they can make. Yeah. And so just to finish the thought is the problem is that this isn't truly market neutral because there's a six-month lag and that 20% premium that 3AC was looking for by the end of 2021 was a 20% discount. So every dollar that they put in, now they were selling only for 80 cents. And on top of that, they were paying Genesis 5 cents of interest for the opportunity to do so. As we now know, like you said, 3AC had actually borrowed $1.2 from Genesis to do this trade that had quickly gone underwater.
1: I think also partially the reason why GBTC also allows institutional funds to enter into the crypto market because they cannot directly buy big ones to put on their balance sheets because it's too volatile. They use GBTC as the vehicle. I think Caddy Woods actually did a purchase of GBTC during this period of time. I think it's about 1.5 million shares, plus minus. Please go and check the numbers for the listeners out there. I think this is, of course, exacerbated by the Terra Luna collapse and then the asset price falling because the Fed raised rates. And of course, that triggered the FTX collapse. I think we already talked about all the fallout. I'm pretty curious now, what is the current situation of Genesis? Because I think the week after FTX collapse, rumors of insolvency is actually being brought out by Ryan Selkis from Missouri. And then there was a pretty cryptic tweet from even Paul Graham of YC and i identified that as extinction level event yeah well look the fact
0: is that genesis came out and said they were unable to service customer withdrawals and that they were freezing withdrawals so how did this happen genesis is in the business of lending and lending specifically to crypto hedge funds when your hedge funds lose money quickly their ability to repay those loans vanishes to the extent that they gave you collateral say if I wanted to borrow money from Genesis, maybe I gave them GPTC. Well, that GPTC all of a sudden has declined in value. Genesis can go and seize my collateral. Great. But like the collateral is worth a lot less than it used to be. So, and then on top of that, Genesis had close to $200 million of funds on FTX, which they can no longer withdraw. So Genesis is now unable to repay customers because one, they can't collect on repayments from borrowers like 3AC who have gone bankrupt. Or two, because it's a liquid and unrecoverable, such as seized 3AC collateral or funds stuck on FTX. And again, like customers, when they smell blood in the water, they always begin another quote unquote bank run, except this time it was at Genesis. And so Genesis quickly had to pause withdrawals just a week after FTX. Um, at this point, uh, I think it's known that Genesis has around $2.8 billion of outstanding loans um, and is trying to raise $500 million to fill this balance. They've got 2.8 billion of outstanding loans, but a lot of those are underwater. And then their liability side of the balance sheet is about 2 billion. uh, Sorry, half of which is owned to Gemini. They're now trying to raise 500 to a billion dollars to fill the balance sheet hole. But given all the rumors and given the fact that they've hired top flight restructuring bankers and lawyers, it's pretty clear that they're having trouble raising that capital and that there's not enough equity value in the business to entice equity investors to come in and salvage it. Hmm.
1: Unless maybe they have the grayscale piece, right? How does Genesis issues impact DCG, given there's actually also intercompany loans? And then what happens to grayscale? So, DCG currently
0: owes Genesis a lot of money via intercompany loans, which creates an interesting wrinkle, right? DCG owns Genesis, but Genesis was the cash flow generating asset before, so they lent money to to the parent company. So DCG actually owes Genesis $1.7 billion. So to the extent that creditors at Genesis want to collect and are asking for their money back, which obviously they are, that money will have to come from DCG somehow or collections from DCG somehow. So how much creditors at Genesis get paid depends entirely on how much DCG is willing to inject back into the business. What complicates this more is that a lot of the people who lent money to Genesis did so believing that DCG would cover any losses. It's not clear whether the DCG actually promised that with a pairing guarantee, but certainly that pairing guarantee was like assumed by many people. So if DCG pulls out, there will be a lot of lawsuits coming after them to try to seek recoveries. So what can DCG do to raise that capital? Right now at DCG, there's really only two meaningful assets of value. The first is Grayscale, which you mentioned. Grayscale, so this beautiful Bitcoin box it generates 300 million of management fees today annually, so it's very cash flow generative and it basically costs no money to run. It's literally Bitcoin in a box. The second asset is its own holdings of GPTC and ETHE or its own holdings, which are roughly 700 million dollars at today's value. So the only logical way to save Genesis is to either have DCG raise capital and/or for DCG to raise capital and sell partial interests in one of those pieces of its businesses that aren't Genesis.
1: So if Genesis files for bankruptcy, I think it doesn't look like it is at the moment. What are the likely scenarios for the crypto industry in general? Because in some sense, FTX collapse can be constituted as a crypto near extinction level event.
0: Yeah, I feel like all this is like so, I hate to use the word fun, but it's very interesting to me because I had spent a lot of time looking at restructuring and workout events, having spent a couple of years at Apollo and their private equity group, which does a lot of these hairy type deals. Although a side note, they backed out of putting capital into this specific deal. But I guess like the most uh, likely scenarios for the crypto industry are really for Genesis are a few. One is, Bankruptcy. There could be a bankruptcy filing, which will be a very lengthy and costly process and very painful. Two is some kind of out of court settlement and haircut to creditors. So maybe all the creditors come together, which we know they have. Gemini and the other creditors have come together to negotiate with Genesis. And maybe they're willing to take 70 cents on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar to sort of like recapitalize the business and get it back on. Or the third is that. DCG is the one that takes the hit, and they raise capital, and they deposit it into Genesis to make everyone whole. The third option, which is recapitalizing DCG and injecting that capital back into Genesis, is clearly the best option for the industry. I believe many creditors at Genesis are holding out hope that that's what it'll come to, but, you know, we'll see, right? DCG really holds the power of whether they want to do that or not. And if the worst comes to pass, which is that Genesis does declare bankruptcy, this would trigger bankruptcy proceedings lawsuits against genesis and dcg and these things take multiple years to resolve so you know the immediate fallout would be that the 2 billion dollars of creditors of genesis have to mark down that money and find another way to fill that hole and including gemini who's owed 900 million dollars there'll be permanent reputational damage to dcg and i'm not sure many creditors have prepared for this outcome because it is so colossal
1: There's also one little thing that hinges on this as well is that whether GBTC can be converted into a spot ETF. And there's a lawsuit now going on between DCG and the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US.
0: Yes. I don't love to uh, believe that I know exactly what the guys at Grayscale and DCG are thinking. But I think logically, if I were the owner of Grayscale, I would be pursuing this lawsuit against the SEC as sort of a front and If I'm Grayscale, I don't actually want to convert to an ETF because then you lose the fee stream. You probably have to lower the management fees and the business might go away over a short period of time. If GBTC gets converted to an ETF and people can, which means that the top of the box opens, people can take out their money from the box. Like fantastic outcome for investors. That absolutely should happen. I'm absolutely in approval of that. but. That would basically destroy the Grayscale business. So it's not super clear that Grayscale actually wants that to happen or that a buyer of Grayscale would want that to happen.
1: There's like some game theory going on. And that's also the reason why they were not so aggressive until this summer. As yes. well. So the point of it is that the GBTC sh- shares is actually trading at 40% discount, right? Wouldn't that, once you can turn into a spot ETF, then that discount would disappear? Yeah, some so, point, so, and with some value, basically. And then that essentially is a get out of jail card for them, right?
0: Yes and no. So it's important to think about who the owners of the assets are. So DCG owns Grayscale. Grayscale collects a 2%, 2.5% management fee on ETH and 2% management fee on bitcoins in these products. And that's on NAV. It's not on price. So even if the discount is like 100%, they're still collecting their full management fees at 0% discount. And so if you're Grayscale, you're like that's a pretty good deal. Like you don't really care if, I mean, you can't grow if you're trading at a discount, but like at least you're collecting this really juicy management Mm -hmm. fee. And then by the way, like, 2% 2% on a 2% to hold Bitcoin, that is crazy expensive. Like what kind of ETF charges 2% management fees, right? Like, yes, maybe a couple of years ago when they started, it was reasonable because it was really hard to access Bitcoin. But today it's really easy to access Bitcoin. And so my sense is that if you allow redemptions, someone's going to redeem. And so Grayscale will quickly go to very few assets managed and lose all that management fee. Now, DCG happens to own a lot of GPDC themselves. So they would benefit because they actually are a shareholder of, of GPTC. And so, like you said, that 40% discount going away would help them a lot. If you do the calculations, it turns out that they're about, there's about they would make about 600 million from the discount uh, going away uh, because they are owners of the asset, but they would also lose probably that $300 million of annual fee income. And so the question is like, do you be short-term greedy or long-term greedy? If you're long-term greedy, you keep grayscale. If you're short-term greedy or you just need to save the business, then you collapse it and turn it into an ETF.
1: I ask this hypothetical scenario. Suppose there is a fund out there now, maybe we can think of Binance Industry Recovery Fund and then they manage to go to a couple of sovereign wealth funds, which I think this has been done before for AIG, where what happens is that you basically go in and bail out that company, and then you put a token warrants on top. In this case, it would be the share value of GBTC in Grayscale. Take that deal, and basically, if the price it falls, you generate more GPT shares for the people who put their money to save you, which is that five hundred million shortfall we're talking about. Can such a scenario happen in today's world? I think, given the all the liquidity crunch that is going on, not just in crypto but across all asset classes,
0: I think it's pretty. Tough. That's an interesting solution, but I think it is pretty tough to see that happening. To your point about the Binance bailout fund, it's certainly a good thing. We'll see how much they actually raise. It would be nice if they do, but it's very clear that right now a lot of institutions have been burned. And so they're not very eager to deploy capital in the space, even though prices are, I mean, just like tautologically speaking, lower than before. And so it's a better price today than it was before. But Certainly, a lot of investors are pretty cautious about entering the space now. I'm not sure that, that will be doable, but I certainly hope so.
1: Because this is where Warren Buffett's quote came in, right? You'll be greedy yeah. when everyone's fearful and you'll be fearful when everyone's greedy. And I actually dig back into history to think about what would be a likely scenario. And such a scenario has occurred before during the last 2008 financial crisis. So I thought that might be also be a situation. But of course, the environment today is difficult. So I'm going to move on from there, but I just want to ask you, you know, recently, SPF, 3AC, you know, and Doquan all went on media tours to talk about their side of the story. And previous to this episode, Carl Davis was on. I think the question I do is, what are your thoughts on whether they can redeem themselves, given so much trust and reputation loss in the whole matter?
0: Can they redeem themselves? I mean, look, they're certainly trying their best. Uh, they're giving it the good call to try, as they say. The... Crypto Twitter is having none of it. Everyone on, on crypto Twitter, at least, is is not buying it for whatever reason. And we can probably name the reasons, but it's not polite to say it out loud, which is that SBF is highly connected in mainstream media on Capitol Hill. I've been highly disappointed in the media's treatment of SBF and the whitewashing of his crimes that seems to be going down. Thanks to more on the ground journalists, it appears that a lot of the, the negative realities are coming out. And so hopefully the truth will be uncovered. But Certainly, it seems like a lot of people are skewing towards a positive interpretation of events, which I don't think is accurate. But if it does happen, then yeah, I mean, maybe SBF can can get away uh, to the extent that he did any crime. Yeah, it's hard to say it's hard to say I have strong hope that eventually bad actors get flushed out because we really need that for the industry to move on. I'm grateful for citizen journalists that are uncovering the bad news and the realities.
1: And uh, you know, I'm hopeful that happens over the next few months. I think specifically for the SBF and Logan case, I don't know about the 3AC guys, as I, if they were proven guilty based on the present allegations in the mm. open, do you think that they should go to jail?
0: Look, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. I do think that if SBF committed a crime, uh, which it does appear that stealing customer funds to do other things when you told them that you wouldn't is a crime and then is likely to result in jail time, just like, you know, very similar, although not exactly the same as the Bernie Madoff case. But you could make the argument that this is more like an MF global where it's just like a disaster risk management. If a company goes bankrupt, that's not a crime, but like stealing money is a crime. And so we'll see which of those get proven out for SBF. for uh, I think the Doquan case is a little different. And so is the 3IC case. Like Both of those are more like very misleading and like bad business dealings and bad practice and certainly preying on consumers. But They just made bad business decisions and went bankrupt. So that feels like less criminal. Certainly lying is criminal. So to the extent they lied in their negotiations with uh, any of their investors or anything, that certainly is criminal.
1: Mm. I actually got the chance to actually go for a conference seminar done by the Andrew Festa, who was the former CFO of Enron. That was, I think, about two years ago. And I think in that particular presentation, he made this very good point. He actually went to jail for a certain amount of years and actually now becomes a reformed, helping people to bust how CFOs would commit fraud. But one point I thought was fair to him and I think he was pretty apologetic about it. And and yet he was very clear about this. Whatever he has done in the process was legal. As in how he did all all these things, it seems legal, right? But the problem of it, why he gets to jail is because it's not the spirit of the law, but the spirit of justice. And I feel that that is probably why Crypto Twitter, and I'm on their side as well, that these guys, whether they like it or not, they should be (laughs) hanged. I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, figuratively speaking, but it's more of like me saying, you know, your reputation and trust are gone, right? I mean, whether we like it in the finance business, trust and reputation are ridiculously important, right? Otherwise, nobody's going to give you money on that. That is probably my point of view on the subject itself. Now, I just want to think about the impact of the crypto world itself. So do you think that now all the exchanges now going for proof of reserves or the, you know, like, for example, Binance, I think many of them is now raising their hand and say we are doing it, will restore some investors' confidence?
0: Yeah, I would say that, like thinking optimistically, certainly the Part one is cleaning of house and getting rid of any, any dead companies walking that still might be out there, which I'm sure we'll find out some. But after that, I do believe the industry can recover from the setback. I don't know that it requires like a large capital infusion like a Binance. Uh, I think it's more just your classic, steady, slow road to recovery. And I have high confidence that this will happen. Yes, FTX was a very large institutional player. Genesis, whatever happens out there, was a very large institutional player. And so it'll take a lot of time for the fallout to fully play out. But just taking a step back and looking at the big picture, none of this has any impact on crypto's like multi-year arc towards enabling innovation. Ethereum as a trustless, decentralized digital asset set of one layer is groundbreaking. That nothing will change that. Tokens as a form of capital creation is a paradigm shift for business formation. Nothing's going to change that. And talented builders are still continuing to come into the system. And soon their work and their labor will bear fruit. And so Just because Fidelity collapsed doesn't mean Amazon's going to collapse. And so it's certainly like negative for the industry, but we will recover largely because like the technology continues to push forward.
1: Given that the industry may recover from this, then the question is, will there be a big regulatory Mm. pushback now?
0: Well, regulators as they should be, are definitely rabble-rousing. Like, the magnitude is way more severe than what happened in June. It's just not clear that there's been any action yet. Regulators can be slow to respond. Not that I'm complaining about that, but, like, almost every country has promised investigations from U.S., Japan, Bahamas, whoever. But, like, actual regulation that's being passed, like, nothing really yet. Like, a lot of recommendations have come out. The U.K. just yesterday... Israel, Australia, El Salvador, and then some are going Brazil enabling cryptocurrency payments. So there definitely is like increased regulatory framework to deal with crypto, but it's not super clear what the enforcement actions are yet. A lot of people saying a lot of tough talk, but like nothing really has happened yet. Even after all that said, like the US is really the only one that matters for, and sorry to be very US centric right now, but like the truth is like the regulatory framework here is probably the one that matters the most. And there just has not been any concrete movement. And so... Look, I think like what needs to happen is certainly like increased oversight of centralized exchanges and lending and borrowing platforms, especially consumer facing ones. You know, Genesis being investigated for potential securities laws violations because of their sort of targeting retail investors in an indirect way, like you said, or like centralized exchanges, like they should probably abide by the same rules that, you know, equity centralized exchanges abide by. So like, Client asset segregation from corporate asset seg- assets, like keeping good track of how customer funds are being used, maintaining proper leverage ratios. like All that I think is good regulation for centralized entities. But I would hope, and I'm a strong believer in keeping DeFi relatively unregulated and keeping DeFi relatively free to continue to innovate.
1: So this is the last question. What are the narratives that sprung out from this collapse? I mean, one very clear one I think seems to be going on is Centralized exchanges are the problem and not DeFi and not your keys, not your crypto and shit coins.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you look at the data, it's just pretty stark how much of a meaningful shift away from centralized exchanges towards decentralized exchanges, DeFi, self-custody solutions, right? Ledger, the hardware wallet provider said they had their best sales week in history. In the week following FTX's collapse, decentralized exchanges, if you look at market share information, there's nearly doubled versus the prior month prior to FTX to over 20% of all crypto trading is now done in DeFi. And I would expect that center of gravity to continue to remain in centralized entities, just because that's like the easiest way to onboard. That's like the easiest way to, for people to access access these services. But increasingly, I think these centralized entities will pull away from being the custodian of your assets and find ways to enable users to trade through self-custody or via third-party custody of assets, just like in traditional finance, right? Like when I trade equities with Goldman or Morgan Stanley prime broker, they don't actually hold those assets. Those assets are held at Bank of New York Mellon the custodian and never touch Goldman or Morgan Stanley's balance sheet. So, I would expect something similar to continue to play out with the centralized entities in crypto.
1: Mm. And of course there's a smart contract. So, if something happens, whatever you post as a collateral will be taken.
0: Yeah, and I'm very in favor of self-custody. I practice self-custody with like a, you know, hardware and and, and MPC solution to to create security around that. But like self custody solutions that that pr- a lot of self custody solutions provide pretty high security guarantees already and, and ways to recover your funds at that. And I would expect that more and more people, more and more people actually are testing and trialing that already. And I expect that to continue. And I fully believe in decentralized finance, self custody and the continued shift towards that.
1: And this is a good time to close. So Cosmo, many thanks for coming on the show. Last two, last two quick questions. First one, any recommendations? which have inspired you recently.
0: Yeah, I've been meaning to come to this. And it was really timely given the craziness in the market is I started reading the book Market Mind Games by Denise Scholl. Denise is a former trader that now runs an investment coaching business. And is actually, if you watch the show Billions, it's the person that Wendy Williams, the psychologist is based off. So she wrote this book, Market Mind Games. She runs a consulting practice. But the premise is that investing and trading can provoke very strong emotions. but And by understanding and cataloging those emotions, the goal should be not to ignore them or to conquer them, but rather to learn to use them to your advantage. So in other words, if I'm feeling anxious before putting on a trade, that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Just know that I'm feeling anxious. And then why? what the drivers of my anxiety are, which are different from person to person, like different things make different people anxious. I I just found this really helpful, a really good reminder of of one of my strong beliefs or core beliefs, which is that having emotional maturity is one of the most important traits to being a successful.
1: I totally agree with you. And I'm going to add another recommendation because I think a lot of my listeners been hearing me talking about the history in the 1880s. I recommend two books and they're actually on the life of this person called Jay Gold. I think the context I would like to put is that if you ask Rockefeller, Cornelius Vanderbilt, any of the entrepreneurs who are very famous of that time, who would you think is the top entrepreneur of that time? They will all mention one name, Jay Gold. And this, this guy is the reason why the SEC is created because he has exploited almost every loophole in the financial market. You start reading the books about his life and then you start to realize, hey, there's not much difference from what is happening now than before so two books one is called dark genius and the other one Mm. is called american rascal which actually published this year so it's pretty contextual for this time last question i need to write that down How can my audience find you?
0: Well, feel free to reach out to me. My name is Cosmo Jung. I'm at, uh, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or or my fund's website, NovaRiver.xyz. Uh, I'd also highly recommend people listen to my podcast, Liquid. I interview other digital asset investors about their ideas and strategies. Uh, and, and yeah, that's, that's the best way. So
1: please go and listen to Cosmo's a podcast similar. I'm also a listener as well. You can definitely find us on anywhere podcast platform and tweet to us at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And we have a YouTube channel and definitely, Cosmo, many thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to speak to you again.
0: Thanks so much for the time, Bernard. This was a lot of fun.